0: I realise I'm not a talented runner. I've run against and with talented runners, and I realise I am not one. You know, in very, very extenuating situations in life, you hear people say, I simply don't know how I achieved that on the day, but somewhere, somehow, I dug it out from something. You know, Um, that's like me. I run life and death, not my life and death, but the reason I'm running is life and death for the animals, I I hope. I am helping, if I can help one single animal by what I'm doing to encourage somebody to not invest in the meat and dairy industry, then that is why I am running. And I'm not selfish enough to want to run for a trophy or a time or a, a medal or a Garmin or something that you might win, but I am selfless enough to want to do it for others and what I believe in. I believe in...
1: That's Fiona Oaks. and this... And this is The Proof Podcast. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. 20% Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to InsideTracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's InsideTracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emile. Amil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750mg of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2-3 to pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends.
2: Welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast, Fiona.
0: Oh, thank you. It's lovely to be here. Lovely, Really kind of you to invite me.
2: I'm really looking forward to giving listeners, Plant Proof community, a, a really good look into the life of someone who not only made a a conscious, compassionate decision to stop eating animal products as a child from a very, very early age, but also someone who has adopted the vegan lifestyle and been able to use it athletically from a performance point of view to get to the very, very top of their field, to become a world record holder in marathons.
0: That's it. That's quite correct. Uh, that was totally self-inspired. I went vegetarian at um, three, three years old. Very, very simple. I won't say decision at that age. A reaction, you know. I love animals. I don't want to harm them. Very unsophisticated in terms of the fact that I knew that flesh of an animal was meat, and so just rejected it. And then. I kind of started to become a little bit more sophisticated with my thought process and kind of wondered why eggs were being taken and why chickens were giving us their eggs. Very, very childlike mentality. Very, very lucky to have a supportive mother, not vegan, not vegetarian, not even particularly animal orientated, who actually made a conscious decision that she wasn't going to lie to me. She was going to tell me the truth and let me draw my own conclusions. And at that point, I said, well, I I really want to opt out of that as well. And this was back in the 1970s. So really, it was not easy. It was not easy. And I've said to people, I, I do public speaking now. It's not something that comes naturally to me in terms of I'm not a particularly egotistical person that feels the need to stand up and talk about myself uh, but I do think it is very important to for people to have role models and a lot of young people have said they are wanting to transition they're wanting to become vegan and they are feeling peer pressure family pressure to not do so for all sorts of reasons one of those reasons been health issues and how it will impact in later life so I kind of feel a responsibility To them to share my story if I can help others in any way especially young people because in essence they are the future yeah so it wasn't easy and throughout my teenage years I was hospitalized quite a lot through an orthopedic condition and um, during that time my diet was obviously um, raising flags red flags with them health professionals and my veganism was um, likened to an eating disorder at the time
2: yeah wow so so you were being directly questioned and and made to feel like you weren't eating the appropriate diet for someone your age?
0: Yeah. I mean, my mom was particularly the emphasis of their questioning in terms of it was leveled at her that it was child abuse. And her answer was, it would be more abusive in her opinion to lie to a child with these very, very unique thoughts and very deep-seated thoughts to just lie to her then to come back in later life and have to admit a lie would be worse than actually telling the truth now and working through it. I will say um, we were very fortunate at that time. I don't think that vegetarianism was particularly well-known in the kind of 70s, early 80s. But my mum is a very, very good pianist. And when she was a child, she was taught at um, the grammar school she went to by a lady who was vegan back in the 1950s. This lady actually even knew Donald Watson. My mum had kept in touch through the musical um, interest and she was able to support and articulate to my mother in an adult fashion what I was feeling as a child. And that was a very great help at the time. But yeah, I mean, my mum went through um, quite a lot of, um, you know, um, angst and um, negativity from both um, family, friends and medical professionals. Yeah, at the time. So it's not been an easy path at all.
2: And did, did you grow up with any other siblings or were you a only child?
0: I've got a sister who is not like me at all. And truthfully, today, she is not vegan. She has one daughter. They're not vegan, they're not vegetarian. She's just not interested. She's just completely different to me, completely different.
2: Which, you know, sounds typical of millions of families out there, um, you know, still today like that. And you, you you hinted that, you know, vegetarianism was was relatively sort of unknown, you know, in the 70s or there wasn't a lot of information and there was definitely not a lot of people um, to go to for, for specific advice, particularly doctors. Mm. What, what about, you know, socially going to school in the 70s, um, early 80s? W- what was it like when, when ki- other kids saw that you weren't eating these animal products?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think kids did question at the time, but at the time I went to a very local school. So I came home for my lunch so it wasn't a problem, and I suppose I was truthfully I was always known I'm very different. I didn't socialise a lot at school from what I remember. I was very very much a loner, always interested in nature, always interested in animals, always wanting to be out walking in the countryside. I didn't kind of follow the kind of I would say normal. It was completely normal to me, but stereotypical childhood path of a girl in the 1970s and 80s. And then when I was about 13, I developed this orthopedic problem, which actually took me out of school. I simply could not attend school. I was so ill. I was in and out of hospital. I was completely, um, I was, my legs were in plaster. I couldn't walk. So I received some home tutoring, but then I was actually housebound practically for a couple of years and i was actually told at that time because of the amount of operations and interventions i'd had i'd eventually had my kneecap removed on my right side i was told that i would never be able to walk properly let alone do any high impact exercise such as running
2: it's 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 crazy to to hear you say that and that that sort of held you back for two years and then you've gone on to become this World record marathon runner yeah, um, yeah. in future years. Did the doctors explain what was, you know, their, their reasoning for the onset of that orthopedic condition?
0: It was just a gross condition because, strangely enough, it developed. You know, I was very, very sporty as a kid. Obviously, I did enjoy sport. I was a very, very good runner as a, as a juvenile. And they said very often this condition attacks very, very sporty people. It's on the knee joints. It's kind of the more active you are, the more likely you are to get it as you develop. So that was their explanation of the condition. Also, I did unfortunately suffer a situation of hospital negligence when um, during a rehabilitation from a surgery, I went to uh, a physiotherapy centre. And they completely misread my notes when it was absolutely do not bend this leg. Oh, crazy. And they literally rolled me over and just the woman that actually there, she was rather a dictatorial, militaristic kind of woman. She just literally laid me on my front and said, you can bend your leg and bent it right back on itself. Oh, no. That, yeah. I came home with a leg about three times the size it should be, back into hospital, all sorts of damage, all sorts of oh. infections, infection. And it compounded from there. So um, it just got worse and worse and worse for me. But it's in the past. And it's something I don't really dwell on now. Um, We've got the present and the future. If you dwell in the past, then it's just bad karma, bad negativity that I don't want in my life. Um, So in some ways, it probably... I don't know how a lot of social interaction in teenage years would have impacted me because I simply didn't have it because of this very, very unique set of circumstances that have been have led to the life and the being that is now Fiona. So, I mean, as a teenager, I never went out. I was literally quite ill most of like from, from like 13, 14 through to probably 17 or 18. I was in and out of hospital and on crutches going in ambulances, going to various um, remedial centres to try and get this leg back and working. And then it developed that I'd missed out a whole tranche of schooling and what was I going to do in the future? So I I was then sent to a college in Oxford to um, train for a profession and I trained to be a secretary. And that was... Pretty much all that I thought I could probably do, because I thought I was going to literally have to lead a fairly sedentary life, because of this this knee injury that was dictating that I couldn't I couldn't really I didn't think I'd be that mobile or or able to cope with um, something very very um, arduous. Yeah, so that's where that's where it all started.
2: So I w- I want to in a minute jump into how you then transitioned from from that part of your life to you know developing into a, the marathon runner that you are today and being a very active person. But before we do that, there's a, there's a very interesting thing I just want to jump back to. And that is that you asked your, your mother where you know the chicken or the eggs were coming from. Did you have domestic sort of pets, dogs or cats at this time? And were you drawing the connection between those animals and farm animals and, and saying, well, what's the difference or how? How were you to sort of come to that question in the first place to your mother?
0: I think, yeah, we obviously had domestic pets like guinea pigs and rabbits and a dog and I had a little pony. But I don't think it's a question of, I don't think, honestly, I drew any parallel particularly between making a connection or a disconnection between a dog and a cat and a cow and a pig or indeed a human. It was just about love. You don't harm that which you love. You don't harm your sister. You don't want to go and hurt your mom. You don't want to hurt your dog. Why would you want to hurt any living being? And I don't, it's not honestly been something that I've thought about very, very deeply. It's just happened. It's almost like a natural reaction. When you're young, you learn to speak. And it's something that I haven't really analysed. It's just always been there. as very, very natural to me. I don't really have that kind of philosophy on um, animals. For instance, I think a lot of people love their dog. It's almost an extension of a love of themselves. You see what I mean? Yeah. Um, I don't have that. I don't see, I mean, for instance, we've got an animal sanctuary in Russia. The demograph of an animal and the situation doesn't dictate the amount of respect or love I feel for it. It deserves that right itself. And I just am respecting that animal for what it deserves and has a right to, which is dignity and obviously not to be harmed. So, yeah, I've always had this inherent love in me of animals and it's always developed, but there's never been any. But why do we do this and why do we do this? It wouldn't it wouldn't have kind of entered my head to hurt our family dog, but it wouldn't. So why would it enter my head to hurt a chicken that's on a farm somewhere or a cow that's in a field somewhere? Do you see what I mean? It's probably it's just something that I wanted to extend to all, as I would not want to harm an individual, whether they be in this country, whether they be in the Sudan. You want everybody to 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 have the same rights as yourself, equally.
2: You know, I think personally there would be a lot of kids who, you know, young kids that age who would share similar thoughts, but unless their parents are helping them to understand how the food ends up on their plate, they sort of grow up to just believe it's normal to eat it.
0: Exactly. And and like I always say to to people, what kid would want to hurt Peppa Pig? Do you know what I mean? If you were to actually say (laughs) they sit and they're enthralled in these cartoons imagery, which not totally but generally have little bears walking around and, and, and you know, Peppa goes on holiday. She's included and inclusive as a human. And and uh, what child would then want to see Peppa? And today, Grandpa Pig says, we're going to an abattoir, Peppa. You know, they wouldn't. But as you say, we kind of sell the image of animal friendly. Kids love animals. But I think they simply aren't told the truth they're growing up to normalize you love this animal or it's acceptable or they aren't told the truth or the information isn't there at their fingertips easily accessible and I think if it was you're absolutely correct at a young age what child wouldn't choose to abstain from that but they aren't very often given the options and that's why I'm extremely grateful to my mother who obviously I mean let's be right she carried me for nine months she she knows me probably best that anyone knows me in the world. She obviously knew that this child was completely different and needed to be told the truth. And for that, I am very, very grateful.
2: And I think, you know, further to what we're saying here, and I was speaking with a friend of mine, Matt Karma, who's an animal activist in Australia, and he he made a, a very good point. He said, you know, a lot of parents don't, they don't want To teach their children about where the food has come from that ends up on their plate because of how bad it is. But if you stop and think about that sentence, you know, if it's so bad that we can't show our children, then there's something wrong with it.
0: Exactly. Yeah, (laughs) Um, exactly. But I mean, a lot of parents, you know, I think it's coming out of the comfort zone. They don't want to think about it. It's ignorance is bliss. Uh, It's what everyone does it must be okay because everyone does it or most people do it this is the norm and most people just want to kind of follow the normal path they just don't want to stand out from the crowd they don't want to make waves they don't want to put their head above the parapet that's what most humans do they want to follow they don't want to lead kind of thing and um, there are many many reasons I think but actually that is is very true if it's so bad you can't tell them you're not protecting them from it by Mm. just ignorance is kind of thing you know towards it so yeah but it's um it I think a lot of people think that you know and we are programmed uh, even in little nuances you know obviously advertising is a very very great tool that uh, and it's everywhere but even things like in the UK you know the stereotypical Christmas card that gets sent it's the Victorian lady in crinoline walking into the room with a, a turkey on a plate all these kind of little things that constantly back up the fact that this is okay it's okay and it's been okay for many many years so so why change it now
2: subliminal just below the line messaging yeah. yeah if you've tuned in to the many episodes
1: i've done focusing on cardiovascular disease the leading cause of death globally you'll be well aware that apob is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than ldl cholesterol the only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by InsideTracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics and biometric data from Harvard, MIT and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com/simon. That's insidetracker.com/simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey.
2: Now, so you you have gone against the norm and you you made that decision very early. You've um, just walked us through... The earlier phase of your life where you had some orthopedic challenges mm-hmm. and at what stage in your life, then you went on and, and you started working as the secretary and, and, and you felt as if you were going to, to live a life that didn't have a, you know, a whole lot of activity to it due to your condition. At what stage did that turn and at what stage did you start running and, and start really enjoying that part of your life?
0: Well, that didn't come to a little bit later. I worked in London because that's obviously where the jobs were. Um, I went to Oxford. I spent time there. um, I took up my cycling because I've done a lot of cycling because that was low impact. I I crave uh, physical exercise. I do. That's what I can do. I have always said I am definitely not a runner, but I'm a person that's predisposed to doing sport. Yeah. Um, so cycling low impact, everybody cycles in Oxford. So took to cycling, you know, race bikes for a few years um, and worked in London. I mean, I, it was quite funny, actually. I worked in London. I absolutely hated it. I worked very long hours in a merchant bank and I lived, I gradually moved further and further and further out of London. So I was part of my training was to cycle. Like I was cycling 100 miles each day there and back to work. actually just get to my job but i always wanted to do something a little bit more fulfilling than just shuffle paper around and take dictation and type that was never going to be me and then i was doing a little bit of kind of rescue from my home um you know um, smaller animals at my home um, and um horses on, you know, farms. You know, I got one or two mm-hmm. horses at farms that I'd come across and wanted to, you know, that was what I was doing in my spare time. And then um, I was renting accommodation and um I got found out for having all these menagerie of animals in rented accommodation, which <laughs> you aren't allowed to do. The <laughs> landlady came round one day and she was greeted by a rather large pit bull terrier. And it was like oh, uh, you're not supposed to keep dogs here, did you know that? And then when she found out the true extent of what I was doing there, she wasn't actually too aggressive, but she'd actually only come round to tell me that it was her plan to sell the property.
2: So uh, to put this into context, what year was this, roughly?
0: This is the uh, early
2: 90s. Early 90s. And and how, how many animals do you think you had at the the maximum in, in that apartment?
0: Probably about 15. You know, I mean, I got little cages and little hamsters that I'd rescued and rabbits and a chicken and whatever. And, you know, I haven't gone completely mad. It wasn't like some (laughs) kleptomaniac collecting, but it was not not in the terms of the the agreement to do it. She wasn't too funny about it, but she um, we decided that the only way forward for doing what I was doing was to buy a house. I looked at a place relatively near to this place I was renting and it had a huge garden, like about two or three hundred foot garden, which is quite unusual for relatively accessibly to London. Mm. Um, so I went to buy this house, um, but um, the sale proved quite slow and I'd given my month's notice and I had to move out of the property I was renting. Um, so now I'm there with my animals and nowhere to live. I was working for a guy in London called Nigel Legg, who was, kind of terribly posh. He was the head of an investment house, uh, James Capel. He said, well, I kind of, I feel very responsible for you, Fiona, because so obviously you work for me and I don't want my secretary, my PA to be homeless. You'll have to come and live with me. So I said, oh, <laughs> I don't think that's going to work out, Nigel, because I've not only got this menagerie of animals, I've got all my bikes, I've got all my possessions and you live in Wimbledon, which is a very, very upmarket area with your wife and three children. I don't think she's going to take to me just moving in like this. He said, okay, I see your point. Um, where are you buying this house? And I said, I'm buying it in a place called Ongar, which is um, out in, in Essex, the county I live in. He said, well, actually, um, somebody who works here, um, works for me also, Martin, he actually lives in Ongar. Let's go and see him and see if you can rent a room off him. And he marched me around to... Uh, Martin's desk and said, I don't know if you know my secretary Fiona, but she's in a bit of a predicament. We wondered if you could help out. And Martin had just bought his his bungalow in the same village and he said, yeah, for sure, she can come rent from me until a house, you know, she gets together with her house. And um, I moved in. I remember one Sunday morning turning up on Martin's doorstep with my bikes and my dog, <laughs> my chickens and whatever. And um, I never moved out. It turns out he had had a, a passive interest in um, animals, in that he obviously loved them. He didn't have a huge collection of animals. He had moved out of, he was living with his parents, he'd moved away from his parents' home purely because he wanted to go vegetarian and his mother said, well, I'm not, you know, the usual excuse is I'm not cooking two meals, I'm not mm-hmm. allowing that in my house. So he thought, right, I'll, I'll buy my own house. And, um, It was just a bizarre set of circumstances. I didn't move out. I rented my house when it eventually came through to his brother. And we actually started on the rescue in an even bigger fashion, in that we took him more animals at his place, more horses, at farms and it was because of this um because people ask me very often how do you start a sanctuary and as you can probably get the tone of my life nothing has actually been planned it's just been a set of circumstances that have mm. been new and personal to me it's not been some grand plan that I've been sitting here thinking you know by the age 15 I've got to have done this by the age 25 I've got to have a sanctuary and 30 the world records have got to come there's been none of that it's just fallen into place as I've gone we uh, we carried on we both worked in London I used to cycle in, see the horses before I I went to London and see them when I came home um, in the evening. And one day I went and I called. We had eight horses. I called them. Seven came over. One didn't. When I went to look for him, I found him impaled on a fence. Oh, no. And um, he'd had a terrible accident due to the negligence of uh, the owner of the farm. Um, He'd allowed people to go into my horse's field and shoot rabbits. And Oscar had got scared. He'd run into a fence. He nearly lost his life. Um, He was 13 weeks at the vet. And it was that pivotal point. We've been standing on this kind of precipice, looking over, thinking we can't go on like this forever. But we really didn't have that imperative gun to the head situation that made us jump and do something. And Oscar's accident was that trigger point in that We'd now got Oscar at the vet. We were very, very unhappy with the way we were keeping the animals. We were devastated with the fact that, in essence, it was down to the way we were structuring the care of the animals, that this had happened, In that we didn't have that omnipotence over them, that we could decide Mm. how they were going to be looked after, that we managed to buy what is now the central part of the sanctuary, which is Tower Hill Stables. I still people, I don't know how we raise the money to this day. I know that throughout my life, the one continuing factor has been the support of my mother. And when she knew what was happening, and when she thought there was even a chink of getting some land where we could do what I had been passionate about doing all my life. She went into overdrive. I mean, she sold her piano. She sold her engagement ring. Furniture was disappearing around my poor father who was sitting there. Where's the television gone? In the lounge? So literally, I I tell a story. I had a great aunt, Nancy. She's 98 years old. And when she knew what was going on, she had, you know, like a lot of elderly people do. I don't know if it's just kind of exclusive to the UK, but she had £1,000 in a sock under her bed to pay for her funeral. (laughs) that came out and she said okay i'm 98 i'm gonna have to hang on a little bit longer give her this and get this property it's incredible and that's what we did um we moved in we didn't have anything to our name at that point but we had the acreage we needed at that time to care for our animals on our terms The plan being, it's quite rural, it's much further away from London, i.e. it was more affordable to be, well, it was not affordable, but it was not unaffordable or impossible. And the plan was going to be that Martin would carry on working to pay for them and I would stay at home and do the physical hands-on care. And that, at the time, we thought would be the end, that would be enough. But me, I mean, I've always wanted to move forward. I don't believe, I think you either move forward or backward. Stay in static is not where I want to be. And after a while, I thought, you know, now I can rescue farmed animals. I can take in cattle. I can take in pigs. Something you can't do when you rent. It's very. You can't put a, a cow at a livery stable you can, with horses. You can't do that. We can't in the UK. Um, so I then started to think, okay, I can take in these animals. Um, I haven't got an awful lot of space here, but I can do what I can. And I might be able to help 20 or 30. At the moment, we stand 450 animals um, at this place and at rented land. But at that time, and this is 20 years ago, I realized I am constantly addressing the symptoms, but I'm not getting at the cause. These animals keep coming because of a violent, cruel and exploitative industry, mm. which I'm not making a dent on. And this is people do not need to be, these animals do not need to be in this situation of needing rescue. They do not need to be born just to die. I need to be able to speak out for them. And that's when, well, what can I do? I mean, I can't really do anything from here. This is pre um, kind of internet, pre social media. This is back in the late 90s early noughties so I hadn't got the money or the time for cycling anybody out there that knows about cycling bike racing you've got it's all about hours on the bike you've got to be two three hours a day training didn't have the time for that Met mostly stationed here looking after the animals I thought well actually I wonder if I can jog I, can, I just jog to keep fit that's cheap that's easy And at this point, it was at the time when um, Paula Radcliffe was making headlines. She had um, done very, very well in marathon. I thought, well, there's a ready-made event there with a lot of publicity surrounding it in the UK, especially because she's a British runner breaking world records in an event that's usually considered exclusive to kind of East Africans. Um, I wonder if I could run. I've been told I can't, but I can cycle and I can walk and I'm, I'm strong and I'm healthy. I wonder if I can kind of run. So that's really how the marathon running started. It was purely by accident. I knew it was relatively cheap to do. You just needed a pair of pair of trainers and you could do it any time day and night. You could do it alone. And that's how kind of my running started. It was like an accidental thing that I've always wanted to progress to its maximum. That's that's all it all it's about. I figured nobody's going to listen to my kind of vegan message. And I will go back when I say, you know, I didn't say to my mom back in the kind of 70s, I want to go vegan because actually I didn't know what vegan was. I, didn't, I wasn't familiar with the word. Yeah, I was going to ask I that. just knew I wanted the ethic. I didn't say, "Mummy, now is the time to go vegan. It wasn't like that. It's that I don't want those products that come from animals. And people even back, you know, now, I don't know what it's like in Australia. You travel a lot, so you, you, you've seen it throughout the world, especially in the UK now veganism everyone either knows what veganism is knows the vegan or is a vegan even a few years ago that wasn't the case people were like what what, what what's that that is that like you eat like thinly sliced ham or you you know what you, you're you don't have dairy products on a tuesday what what does it mean but now pretty much people know what vegan is back then they didn't and I kind of wanted to promote this message, but I realized very quickly that no, it's a message that people even today don't embrace wholly, especially the media. And it's how do I do it? I'm a nobody. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I am in essence a nobody. I've got to kind of make myself into a somebody with a positive message that people want to hear rather than dragging them into a classroom and making them sit down and preaching at them you've got to kind of invest their interest you've got to give them something back and I kind of figured that was what I could do with the marathon running um, that's what I've tried to do with my marathon running go out there in a positive proactive way and if you can get the, the better I can run the better I can engender interest in the reason I am running I am not a runner I don't I will not say I don't enjoy running I realize how lucky and blessed I am to be able to because I spent so many years in my formative years off my feet not even been able to walk but I don't enjoy the intensity of which I run in the sessions I do train if if everything in my life is 100% full-on so um, I don't like go out for pleasure jogs it's structured sessions that are a means to an end so you're probably feeling quite ill when you finish or you're, you're thinking, oh no, today's 10, 800 meter pushers and I've got to meet my goals. It's, it's that kind of running.
2: So it sounds like you, you've really willed yourself to become a world record holder to do that, to, to have a stronger voice for the animals.
0: Absolutely. And, 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 and people think sometimes when you say, you know, I've got a personal best in the marathon of two hours, 38 minutes. And I say, I'm not a runner. People say, oh, you kind of either fishing for compliments or whatever. I'm not. I realize I'm not a talented runner. I've run against and with talented runners. And I realize I am not one. I am somebody with a very, very, I've, I've, I've driven. I'm a reason for running. You know, in very, very extenuating situations uh, in life, you hear people say, I simply don't know how I achieved that on the day. But yeah. somewhere, somehow, I dug it out from some s- something, you know. Um that's like me. I'm, I'm, it's like I run life and death, not my life and death. But the reason I'm running is life and death for me, for the animals. I hope I am helping. If I can help one single animal by what I'm doing to encourage somebody to not invest in the meat and dairy industry, then that is why I am running. And it takes me perhaps to another level. I can transcend the pain a little bit more. I'm not selfish enough to want to run for a trophy or a time or a, a medal or a Garmin or something that you might win. But I am selfless enough to want to do it for others, if that makes sense, and what I believe in. And in 2005, I was really, really blessed to be um, – running i was invited to run on the elite stars of the amsterdam marathon and it was when harley gabislasi was going for a world record in the event and we spent the friday evening before the race in the same hotel and had about an hour together just chatting talking running and he actually explained to me that he was obviously transitioning from um, the track, he'd won two Olympic gold medals, 10,000 meters, Mm. and he was moving up to the marathon. It's not always an easy transition for very flamboyantly talented runners to make because the marathon, yes, it takes talent to be very, very good at marathon running, but it also takes a very, very strict and strong mental discipline and drive. I think Paula Radcliffe had it because she had never won a major track medal. She just didn't have the kick finish at the end of a race to be able to win she could go out and work all day long but she didn't have that extra something it took to win a major track medal and that made her even more determined to use what ability she had got which was a very very tough spirit to use on the road and very often when things have come to people i won't say easily but with a flamboyance of talent and a kick finish in in these sort of middle distance races, they find it hard to translate that into the absolute gruel and grind that everyone feels at 22 miles in a marathon. And Gabriel Sassi explained to me that he felt that he was hoping, what was driving him was not his desire to win marathons, but the dependency of lives On his running, back in Ethiopia, about 10,000 people find employment and prosper because of the um, commerce his running generates. So he's got hotels, he's got cinemas, he invests a lot of his money back into his country and a lot of people make a living from it. And he felt that that is what pushes him on more, the dependency of others on his achievements. Makes him want them that little bit more than wanting them for himself, and I think that's a little. Obviously, I haven't got his talent, but um, I think it's in essence, the root of it. It makes you work that much harder when you're doing it for others than when you're doing it for yourself.
2: And just, just in terms of your own career, what was or what is your sort of typical training regime like in terms of preparing for these marathons? And what are you, what are you eating?
0: Well. My diet is actually quite unusual in that I don't advocate this diet to anyone else or this lifestyle. Um, I only can tell the truth on what, how I've gone about things, bearing in mind always that we have 450 mouths to feed at this sanctuary. So mine is very often the last one I actually think about. Truly, we we have very very limited funds for anything fancy. I only eat one meal a day in the evenings. And um, I it's based, my diet is based on fresh vegetables. A lot are grown here at the sanctuary. We are in a food donation program from a supermarket for the pigs to feed the pigs. And we get their um, end of date vegetables, which I do use for my own cooking. My mum does all the cooking. She lives with us. Uh, So it's very, very basic pulses, whole grains, nuts, fresh vegetables, seasonal vegetables. One one thing I do always try to do is a colourful Plate, I believe in colours. So, you know, beetroots and carrots. And it's a colourful platter. So there might be 12 different vegetables and nothing really, really fancy. Um, I don't have a go to food. People ask me, I, I do like Siberian pine nuts, which my friend sends me from Russia. I like mushrooms. Um, I don't take any vitamins. I don't take any um, supplements. It's literally one meal a day. And actually, I was running a race, the biggest race in Russia, biggest marathon in Russia as part of my world record. And I arrived there and um, one of the Kenyan athletes, I was explaining to his manager that I was going off to do another marathon in a couple of weeks in um, America. And he said, oh, my God, you're crazy. You're crazy, you know. And I said, it's part of a world record. I've got to do these marathons every week or every other week. And I said, you know, and he said, what's fueling you? And I said, well, I've got this diet plan, eat one meal a day, et cetera. And he said, oh yeah, the warrior diet. And I'd never actually heard of it. And it's, it's all <laughs> about, it's, I thought, oh, you know, he put a name to it here. He said a lot of the Kenyan athletes follow it. It's just a part of deprivation in your diet, which allows you to utilize food better. Mm. Now, whether that is the case or not, I don't know. But it's something, uh, the D word in my life is discipline. I like to work to a very ordered and disciplined life. It suits my lifestyle in an evening that I stop. I eat this meal in the evening and go to bed, which is probably all wrong. Some people are actually now saying it's probably beneficial. It's just not what normal athletes do. I rush about a lot. I literally don't have very much time to fit my training in. Typical training when I'm running for a fast time in a marathon. And a lot of people call me an ultramarathon runner. I wouldn't really consider myself an ultramarathon runner. It's the amount of mileage I've done, base mileage I've done and do for the the road marathons that would naturally carry me through an ultramarathon in that I probably run between 100 and 110 mile a week of hard sessions to do a quick road marathon. Three speed sessions a week, ten eight hundreds. Twenty four hundreds one uh six one mile pushers, evening sessions on those days 10, 12 miles easy a hill session, a longer run and a long midweek run one rest day uh, and very often on that rest day I'll kind of swim or I'll I'll do some biking or do some you know core strength in the um, in the gym. But I'm mentally driven with my running. I'm not certainly not physically driven. And when I um, stand on the start line of some of the big you know, like, you know, Berlin Marathon and they're panning across with a camera. And so I'm I'm feeling very, very conscious because obviously I'm physically a lot bigger than the other girls, it like that. And I'm thinking, oh my Lord, have they got a wide camera angle lens? Are they going to fit me all in? And, you know, <laughs> very, very, you know, and then they say, don't start a marathon knowing you, you know, you don't want to be in a, starting a road marathon, knowing you're carrying an injury. And I'm never not carrying an injury because my knee always hurts when I run. I won't say I run through pain. I do run through pain in terms of the fact that it's a manageable pain. I know what is causing the pain. And I know that if I stop, it will stop. So I'm not kind of advocating that people go out and beast it through and damage the cells, you know, um, irreparably or anything like that. I've got this knee injury. It hurts when I run. It especially starts to hurt after about 20, 22 miles. That's something I just have to manage and cope with. I never train with anyone. I don't there's no one around here that runs to my level. My knee is still so bad. I can't do any speed work on a track. I can't run the bends because it affects the knee. It pushes it out of place. And my knee dislocates very, very easily. Um, So I do all my training, my speed work on a treadmill. Not ideal, but at least it's honest. You know, you crank it up. You know what you're doing. You know what you should be doing. Very, very basic. I am just an amateur running a runner punching above my weight. Uh, and, and do you have a
2: coach, a coach that's taking now, you through all of this or have you done all of this yourself?
0: I've done it all myself. And the reason being, we trace back strangely enough to the veganism. When I started to, you know, get the results in, I started off just testing the water with shorter distance races, local, you know, 10Ks, half marathons, winning them, breaking course records. Not that the records were very great, you know, but you were winning, you were getting some sort of interest. And I approached one or two coaches and I thought, well, how do you transition to a marathon? Because it's not certainly not two half marathons back to back. And I realized that. So I went to one or two coaches and said, you know, could you help me through this? And they were saying, like, well, okay, for sure, you've, you've got some ability, but the diet is a problem. You're not going to succeed on, on what, what do you want to call it, plant based or vegan diet. Yeah. You won't succeed. You need animal proteins. That's a definite, definite thing. I said, well, the diet isn't up for negotiation. So I go it alone. And it has been an awful lot of trial and an awful lot of error and working out what suits me and what my body can can take. And it's taken a long time to build up to the level where you can just go out and, and do the amount of training I do. I've had to do it gradually. I've had to work out, you know, the hard way that no matter how many miles you run slowly, it's speed sessions that are going to carry you to the quick times. The speed sessions are hard, they're unforgiving. And I think one of the the most difficult things has been self-motivating this and managing this kind of training program alone. You know, it does help sometimes to say, hey, I'm meeting John and we're going out running together. There's never been any of that. It's all been about Fiona, dig it out, go out and do it no excuses no one nagging at you no results to show anyone you've just got to do it for yourself and if you cheat or you, you if you you give up or you don't achieve what you want to do it's yourself and the animals you're letting down there's no you know you could hide in a million places because I've had no one to be answerable to i've done it all all on my own all self motivated self inspired but then we go back to at three years old, I say self-inspired vegetarian. I am very, very strong-willed. I know it's very, very clear to me. Probably I don't see the world the same way as other people, but I see it very clearly. My world is very, very clear to me. If you believe in something, you want something, you go out there and you achieve it. You don't ask others to help you. You rely on yourself and you make it happen. That it's just that's just the way I am.
2: Just so, so many amazing take-home messages in, in everything you've just said, and and I think. A really, a really good part of that is the fact that, you know, all of us can achieve so much more than you know, so much more physically than our mind likes to likes us to think we can.
0: Yeah, exactly. It, it really is. It, you really can. And I think that you know, people do write to me and say, you know, oh, I I've had the knee injury. I wouldn't have believed this was possible. Or you know, you can. And I think it is having that reason over and above. Um, A belief, something that you're really striving towards more than just like like 26.2 miles on concrete or tarmac. There's something much more driven behind what I do, behind everything I do. I mean, we were told when we started the sanctuary, it wouldn't work. We wouldn't be able to sustain it. And now we're in the process of moving and expanding it. You know, it's just self belief. You know, don't listen to what other people say to you. You know, don't if you know you can do it, go and do it and prove them wrong and make that the drive behind what you're doing. Just the anger and of proving, you know, and, and the satisfaction of proving people wrong. Yeah. So, I mean, that's how I started my running. I used to another very, very um difficult part of my running is that because of um, logistics, finances, I only ever used to do two marathons a year. I literally used to focus two of the biggest races in the world, whether it be London, Berlin, Amsterdam, and I'd train for them alone. And you go from this bizarre juxtaposition of very amateur running in the wilderness to suddenly getting on a plane and getting greeted at the other end like you're some superstar god of running. And, um, you know... Been escorted into the Olympic Stadium with Haile Gebra Selassie in Amsterdam, or on the start line of the Berlin Marathon, been greeted by Mark Mill, the race organizer, going to technical meetings with these flamboyantly talented runners, and kind of sitting at the back of the technical meeting, thinking I really don't understand what they're saying. And you're kind of playing noughts and crosses with your mum <laughs> because you just you don't really know. You know, you know. I'm not considering you know making my great push at 30 miles. You know, at 30 30k. Technically, I just want to finish the race kind of thing in one piece. And it is kind of weird. And then you, you probably um, come eights overall. Um, I mean, I remember when I turned up in Amsterdam this particular time, I went to collect my race number at the elite hotel. And this was the first time I'd been invited to an elite start. I kind of turned up and I kind of said to the guy, you know, I'm here for my race number. And he said, oh, sign on is at the Olympic Stadium. And I kind of thought, oh, my Lord, have I made a terrible mistake. I look like a real fool here. I've, 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 I've thought that the invitation is extending to this elite star and I'm just in with the masses. And I said, oh, well, um, the, the, the email I've got said to come here. And he said, you know, well, let me see. And uh, he said, oh, you, you're on the elite star. And I said, yeah, you know, um, he said, oh, uh, Why? And I said, well, you know, um, Yas Herman invited me and um, he said, well, what times have you run? I told him the times and he said, um, OK, he said, uh, if you run out your skin, you, you might come like top 15, you know, in this field, which would be massive for you. And I, I came eight.
2: Yeah, uh, and wow. I was
0: only beaten by the Kenyans and the Ethiopians who are the talented runners. They are the, you know, the experts. So it is, you know, you do feel it's, it's a strange situation to be in and, uh, you know, to, I, I don't train I don't kind of I don't advocate so much if you're really really wanting to do well in a marathon I've gone much more for the idea of a four-month block of solid training than continually breaking off to race Uh, because I do think well what's the point you can train relatively hard over 10k or a half marathon but if you what If you're only going to race relatively hard, you may as well just train. But if you're going to race specifically, you need to taper and you need to rest after. So what you're gaining from the actual race, you're losing in the taper Mm. and the post-race. So just keep a solid block of sustained training going. And that's what I've done. Then just tapered, gone off to my race and always produced on the morning what I've, I've, I've said I'll produce. And I've done it, you know, over and over again in these major marathons.
2: What are the the most fondest or the greatest achievements? What records do you currently hold?
0: The records that I hold, I'm the fastest woman to run a marathon on every continent and at the North Pole in both um, days, the days it took me to do it, to literally go to all these races. And actually the time the running times so actually physically i'm the fastest physical runner to run on every continent in the north pole and i'm also funnily enough last weekend i broke another world record (laughs) um because we're transitioning over to um the new farm and i'm never quite sure what i'll be doing with my running i thought well i need to do something i was supposed to be going off and doing some stage races which have had to be put on hold because of the move and we're never quite sure when we're going to have to put the funds in place and go i went to norway and um did a half marathon which i thought would be uh, ridiculous because um i've trained for long 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 miles so you know i've done marathon Sable three times i've done the, the multi-stage races recently and broke a record but i wanted to do something positively for the animals and I I knew I couldn't do much, so we decided to don a cow suit uh, that's
1: and become photo.
0: a fatuous woman. Yeah, just just as a little bit of a different thing. But I mean, even so, I couldn't run that slowly. I thought I was going to get blown into the Arctic Ocean. I, I was I was aiming for the land of the midnight sun, and I ended up in the land of the midnight storms. It was like <laughs> twenty five mile an hour wind and hail and rain. It was atrocious weather conditions. I got this big cow suit on. It was blowing me over. One side, and I thought, "Oh no, this was this is going to be a bad evening at the office." And um, I broke my record by thirteen minutes, even though I hadn't even trained the speed uh, for a while. But um I've, you know, I've got these four world records. Proudest moments, I suppose. You know, you know, the PB of two thirty-eight. I'm pretty proud of in a marathon. I'm pretty proud of three completions of marathon DeSable. Sable. Yeah, I mean, I'm not really that bothered. I, I really. I, I, got, I really don't think too much about the races I've run. I don't have medals. and tra- I mean, Even when Keegan came over to film for his film about me, I just kind of said, well, where are your trophies? Where? I don't know. I really don't know. I don't keep them. I don't run for that reason. I don't keep newspaper cuttings. I don't keep cabinets. I don't keep any of these things. Once it's done, it's done. It's done for a reason to generate positivity towards the vegan diet. And in, I don't know in Australia if it's a big thing, but in, um, in 2004, I was getting, it was becoming apparent that the times I were running were actually going to get me facilitate entry to big races as an invitation runner. And I was running for the only club that I felt comfortable running for or could run for, which was the Vegetarian Cycling and Athletics Club. And because obviously I got to run in an affiliated club best. And one of the guys there, Peter Simpson said, look, you, you, you're, getting, you, you're really good. Why don't we take this to the next level? Why don't we start a dedicated vegan running club. I said, yeah, that's that's fantastic. So that's when um, the Vegan Runners was started. It's now global. It's the largest running club in the UK. It's got over 17,000 members. And I always say strategically, it's probably the most effective form of accidental vegan activism that I've ever been part of. In terms of the thing, we didn't actually know at the time it was going to be so big. But the very thought now in the UK, if you come and you do any of the park runs, every race now, wherever you go, will have some vegan runner present, somebody wearing that there wow. and putting that name out there. And we started it um, because we thought, okay, you're on the elite start of the ladies' London Marathon. Yeah. You go off 45 minutes before the main race and the men. You will run alone through the streets of London for 26.2 miles with a captive audience that have got to look and grasp for that word on your vest, vegan. So you're running along and you're running up the mile, you're in front of the men, you can hear the helicopters of the elite men, you know, coming behind two or three minutes. And, you know, there's a massive crowd there, there's TV cameras, and they're shouting, you know, what they see on your vest come on, there's a vegan runner coming up here. And that was back in 2004. So, yeah, that, that's probably one of my proudest moments, being able to carry that vest um, and win races in it. And then people come over to you afterwards and say, vegan, you know, what's that all mm. about? You know, um, that's, be, that, that's been my proudest moment with my running, not particularly standing on top of a podium and getting a glass dish. That would, be,
2: that would be sparking enormous conversation you know, daily, weekly. Yeah, It
0: has done. It really has done. So then obviously I went off and, you know, I, I kind of lowered the bar a bit with the running and kind of won a load of marathons. And that's when I'd kind of won them. I'd run fast marathons. I'd done as much as I could. And I thought, well, you know, is this, the time to say, okay, I'm going to stop running. And then one of my, I, I always say, one of my friends said to me, what, you know, you've done the fast marathons, you've won marathons, why don't you do the toughest race in the world? And then that kind of proves how tough a vegan can be. And, um, I, you know, obviously my ears pricked up, you know, what's that? And at the time it builds itself as the toughest foot race on the planet, whether it is or it isn't, I don't know. Marathon the Sable in the Sahara Desert. And um, I went off and did that. Um, and um, that wasn't easy for me. Because um, I run in conjunction, obviously, with the sanctuary, which is always the most important part of my life. And a week before I went out to the desert, um, I broke two toes. One of the horses tr- trod on my foot. I went, she'd gone down. She was very elderly. I had to get her up alone. And I did get her up. But unfortunately, she stepped back on my foot and fractured two toes. So now I'm faced going to the toughest foot race on the planet, a week in the Sahara Desert, carrying her own supplies, marathon-ish a day, one day over a double marathon, with two fractured toes. I build, you know, I told people I was going. There was a great excitement, you know, first vegan woman to ever do this race. Very, very difficult, being an ethical vegan. My pack equipment weighed heavy. My sleeping bag was double the weight of anybody else's. My overnight clothing, you know, was synthetic at the time. There weren't the advances with synthetic substitutes, so the downfield stuff was light. My, filth, my stuff was heavy um there wasn't really the expedition food available for vegans so i was carrying a large pack for a relatively small person it weighed over 12 kilos with the two fractured toes and i i by the um long stage my feet were so bad because they were swollen before i went out there and i hadn't had time to change my shoes um For the race, they tell you buy shoes that allow for foot swelling because your feet, unless you're used to 55, 54 degree heat and running in it and sand, they're going to swell when you get out there. So you need them um, adapting specially with Velcro to take a a sand gaiter so you get no sand in your shoes because sand in your shoes equals no skin on your feet over those kind of distances. Blisters, you do not want out there. And of course, on the right foot where these... um, i got these fractured toes. My, my foot was swollen anyway. So I could hardly get my foot in the shoe when I went out there. So when I arrived, sure enough, my feet swelled and I was in all sorts of trouble. And by the Thursday of the long stage, you could see the bones sticking out my little toe. <sighs> I'd managed to um, get myself into such a predicament. But I did it. I got through it. And I got through it because of the reason I was doing it. You know, people were writing to me in the tent late night. I was sitting there with my foot up and all sorts of pain and um, people were writing saying, oh, you're doing this for the animals, remember? And I was thinking, yeah, for sure. You know, I am in this state. I have got a very, very bad injury here. Don't show the race doctors because I knew they'd pull me out of the race. I mean, I knew it was like, this is ridiculous. But I was thinking, you know, whatever pain I'm in, it's going to end on Saturday if I get through it. And their plight never ends until they're extinguished. Their life is extinguished from them. So what What am I moaning about? And also, I will say not to go too deeply into it. A race like that also makes you think not only about the animals that you're running about, about human animals, other human beings that are suffering on a daily basis in appalling conditions, and they don't have the thought at the end of the week those, that suffering is going to end. That's their life. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's quite ridiculous to say, OK, the conditions you live in are terrible. You know, there are no toilets, no showers. You're carrying everything in your pack. You feel weary. But at any point, you can put your hand up and say, actually, I want to go home now to the five-star hotel back in Wazazat." That's not an option for a lot of people out there. And holding that thought dear to me when I come back into Sibby Street into normal life is very very important the privilege of turning a tap on and water coming out is such an honor it's 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 amazing and it's something that people just take for granted Mm. and I think that that, those races yeah for sure you get a medal and a lot of people just tick it off a bucket list and it's dinner dinner party conversation but if you embrace it for all it is it can be a life-changing experience and a very very great learning learning experience, which can take you through the rest of your life and hopefully make you a better person and a more understanding and empathetic person of other people's plight. So when I turn the news on now and I see people in these terrible camps, terrible conditions with no water, I have in essence been without water, been frightened because I've got no water and it's not a good place to be and it's not a place that any living creature should be in in the 21st century. So. Yeah.
2: That's it's it's an amazing perspective that you you're able to keep coming back to and and you know through sharing your story over the last hour it seems like you you were born with that perspective like at the age 3 when you started making these very conscious and mindful decisions you were able to to have great perspective on life and what it meant to be compassionate and love. You you just mentioned the running for good documentary. Yeah. We're coming to the end of this podcast, but I think it would be good for, for you just to describe to the listeners what this documentary is all about when it is likely to be available uh, for them to tune into.
0: Back in September 2016, uh, a very lovely young man called Keegan Coon wrote to me and said, you know, introduced himself and said, you know, hi, I'm Keegan. Um, I don't know if you've heard of me. I made Cowspiracy and my latest documentary, What the Health is Currently Running. And you know, I'm reading this mail. And um, he said, I'd like to make my next documentary about you. And I thought, what you know anybody wants to make a documentary about me it's going to be a very short documentary because I'm not that interesting honestly, but when he actually came over and he explained it to me, he said, "Look, I think you're the whole package you've been vegan for so long, you can address the questions and you know the doubts that people have you know you haven't built your muscle mass or your career on an on um a meat and dairy um and then kind of sustaining it plant based you are." Constantly plant based, you've got the sanctuary, you understand the animals, and you've got the world records of sporting achievements to back it up. It's your whole life. Veganism is your whole life. And I'm always very cautious. I don't like being the centre of attention. But in the end, Keegan was so nice and so sympathetic and empathetic to what I'm doing. We agreed to go ahead with the filming, and it's basically spent a year. Uh, filming me here at the Sanctuary he came to the Sahara Desert with me I did the Marison de Sable he was quite shocked by it he said you know I hadn't really got a handle on what this race was Uh, having seen it you know um, it's spectacular he just wants to basically that's the title of the film Running for Good it obviously means so many things it's the reason I do my running is for good the good of others Um, and the way I look at it I feel like it's like running for good like running forever because I've just like been you know continually running but it's all about basically promoting vegan living plant-based living whatever you want to call it in a positive way and so and show that it can be done the longevity the sustainability the achievement the compassion the understanding it's all in this film Um, as to when it will be available uh, we're not sure to, it's at the distribution stage now. Um, it's with one or two distributors, Netflix, Amazon and one or two others. I, I'm not too au with the names of these things. Um, and he's waiting for whether they'll take it on and distribute it. And that's hopefully going to be um, mid-late summer. So within uh, the next couple of three weeks, four weeks, we might have an answer. And I'm not sure how quickly it works after that. But hopefully by the late summer, early fall, it should be available for people to see on what kind of distribution i'm not sure whether it'll be um on netflix or 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 whatever but it will be out there and easily accessible to people um so i'm leaving it with keegan because as you can probably gather i'm not an expert on that side of things i just kind of do the doing and he's in charge of making the films and like all the technology but hopefully next couple of months it will be available for people to have a kind of an insight into my life not so much for me to say this is me, I'm great. But there might be snippets of it that people can take away and share and identify with and use as inspiration for their life to go out and think, you know, and probably give them the belief that, you know, this is possible, you know, I can do this. And probably, you know what, they can probably do it an awful lot better than I ever have. And that does gives me a great inspiration and motivation to know that there are people out there with so much more talent, so much more ability than I'm ever going to have that can make a difference in this world that might just enable it to have a prosperous future, rather than if we carry on as we are doing, I think we're going to implode in our own greed and um, gluttony. But obviously, the main passion is to promote plant-based living because, and obviously address the issues of the terrible detrimental effect animal agriculture has on this planet, not just for the animals, but for the planet, the environment, and for other human beings, as well as promoting the posit- positivity of health to the individual.
2: As soon as, soon as the, the documentary is available or you know where it will be available, I will happily let the plant proof community know where they can tune into that.
0: That's really kind. Thank you so much. <laughs>
2: um, yeah, I'd just really like to thank you for, for taking the time to, to sit down and share your story today. Your story is really inspiring and, you know, you're such a kind and and selfless soul, you know, and an amazing voice for all of these animals that can't speak across the world. And, you know, in addition to that, just a a great example of how much more all of us can achieve beyond these artificial limitations that we, we set on ourselves.
0: Or other people set for us and we're almost told to stay within those limitations and there's no need to. You can break out and break free and then really the sky's the limit. And I think that in a way that that's what kind of, you know, people are frightened of, you know, um, we we are if you with self-belief, you can achieve anything.
2: Yeah, that's right. You are, you're an absolute superstar. So, yeah, thank you very much for today's conversation. And if anyone would like to reach out and connect with you or, you know, on social media or shoot you an email or something, how could they get in touch?
0: Well, just Google, look up Fiona Oaks. I'm on Facebook, obviously. Instagram, Twitter, through the website. Um, I once actually phoned in a radio show, just a sporting uh, quiz a documentary thing that they were talking about and I didn't tell them I was vegan, I didn't tell them anything and you just search Fiona Oaks and Mar- or Fiona and Marathon and then my name popped up and then he said, oh, you're a vegan. I said, oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> but so just Google me and I'm out there, you know, on also, and I do answer every, every mail. Anybody's got a question about the running, about the sanctuary. Anybody wants to come over and stay at the sanctuary, interact with the animals, learn more, learn about the way I've done things, just get in touch via any of the platforms. I mean, I always answer. I, I do all my own emails, so, you know, and I'm pretty quick to get, to get back to people. Uh, so if there's anything that I can help anybody with whether it be running advice, whether it be, you know, wanting to start a sanctuary, whether it be how to tackle peer pressure, anything, or just want to chat, just get, you know, get in touch on any of those mediums. And I'm more than happy to talk.
2: Thanks, Fiona. Very, very generous. Thank you. And that's this week's episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. Connect with myself and the Plant Proof community at plantproof.com and at plant underscore proof on Instagram. Don't forget to sign up to the newsletter to receive our free plant-based nutritional information, including recipes, important blogs, and much more direct to your inbox. Until next time, folks, I'm your host, Simon Hill. Keep your spacesuit plant-proof.